You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello, welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hello! How we doing? Good, good. Yeah. Okay. A couple of notes I wanted to mention before we get on with today's topic. Doug, you and I went to Denver for the Geological Society of America meeting. Yeah. Did you have a good experience? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I gave a talk. In, in a party session. In a party, which is the fancy session at yeah. GSA. So we <laughs> call it GSA, but um, big stage, very nervous. It was you did. It was great. I mean, to give a talk in a party is is yeah. an accomplishment. And you ran a party, so I ran yeah. a party <laughs> that went off quite well. It was uh, a lot of work, but it was a party on landslides and engineering geology. It yeah, was, it was, it was they, had a, they had a nice reception afterwards too. I felt like this year's GSA was very, uh, you know, more energized, more fruitful. Like we're coming a couple years off pandemic, and people. I just felt like people were really into being there in person and yeah, it's a good meeting it in was general. Very nice being in person. That was my first big meeting since um the before times and it was it was nice. I mean the virtual meetings have their benefits in some ways, but nothing beats seeing people in person and engaging and, and yeah. all those sort of things. So. I came back with a lot of good ideas. So it was it was fun. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to mention is CNN came to the Kentucky Geological Survey and interviewed our director, Bill Hanneberg. Crazy, yeah. And so I, the only reason I'm mentioning this is I was kind of, I got to observe the whole thing because uh, they did the interview up in our deal lab, which is our digital earth analysis lab, where we have some high powered computers and a big touch screen. And so just to see the whole operation from an outfit like CNN was pretty cool. Uh, three trucks of gear, you know, carts of cameras and lights that set up for the interview with Bill took two and a half hours. That's crazy. And they set it all up in the, the, the little room. The room's not very big. So it's a little room up there. They packed it in, arranging lights, arranging everything. Pamela Brown from CNN did the interview. She, she was super nice, very cool. Um, Bill did a really good job. They They're doing a big piece. I'm not entirely sure of the the focus but a lot on climate change talking about the floods in july in eastern kentucky they were talking about the tornado uh, some other things so there, it's it's going to be a big relatively big piece on cnn sometime here in the near near future yeah that's cool yeah it was mm-hmm. good were they impressed by our podcast setup I wish I, I, I should have showed, uh, Pamela, can you come down and check out our podcast? I think you, I should have, should have done that. All right. Let's get on to today's topic and it's earthquakes. And we've, we've been saving this one because it's an important one. And, and, you know, it's just, it's a traditional kind of geologic topic. And um, so we didn't, you know, we didn't want to let that one right out of the bag. When we first started this, we kind of kept earthquakes, and uh, but uh, obviously very important. We want to discuss basics of earthquake science, Kentucky's role in earthquake hazard assessment, and the future of a lot of these things. Uh, so let's introduce our guest. It's KGS seismologist Seth Carpenter. Seth's my office neighbor and friend, and uh, he's been here for a while. So Seth, welcome. All right. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, why don't you describe uh, to our audience what you do? Well, uh, Matt, as you mentioned, I, I study earthquakes. So I'm, I'm, I guess my official role is as a seismologist. And uh, as in particular an earthquake seismologist, um, I do research on earthquakes um, and their effects in and around Kentucky and other places that might behave similarly to Kentucky. Uh, and I also operate the seismic network uh, for KGS and the university. Yeah, we're, we'll get into the network for sure. Um, but, you know, we like to start out pretty basic here. So, so what what is an earthquake, Seth? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe gets, not basic. That gets us moving. <laughs> uh, well, traditionally, earthquakes were thought of as uh, a, a discrete slip on a break within the Earth, um, in, in the Earth's crust somewhere, and where one side of the rock mass at that location in the Earth slipped and moved with respect to the other side. Um, and it happens, it, we always thought of it as happening in sort of a discrete way where you would have a sudden release of the energy from that break uh, in the form of seismic waves. Uh, it turns out that's a little more nuanced, uh, as we've learned in recent uh, maybe decade or so, uh, where earthquakes have been observed that occur very slowly over the period of days. Uh, and so that... With you have when you have such a slow release of that energy, you don't get the formation of those strong waves that you would have experienced uh, typically, uh, according to the old understanding. But what's common between the two is that you have one body of rock moving past another body of rock, and and the potential for ground shaking, earth trembling associated with that. Slippy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And most, I believe, I guess most people are familiar with the terms epicenter and focus. Um, but the, the epicenter is just a point on the surface of the earth that represents, represents the earthquake, but it really just represents a much larger slippage along a fault plane. Mm-hmm. Well, depending on the size of the earthquake, you're right. Uh, so the epicenter is is how we show where earthquakes happened on the map. Um, yeah. They basically uh, show us that an earthquake occurred in that latitude and longitude, but uh, we know that the earthquake occurred at a particular depth below that point too. So that point is given the name hypocenter. And uh, for small earthquakes, the you know they are occupying a really really small location, and the dot is a good representation. Uh, for that earthquake. But for larger earthquakes, the dot fails. And I think that's what you were getting at. Uh, now the, um, the earthquake occurred on a structure much larger. Usually we'll show it either as a circle or a rectangle or something simple to otherwise describe something that's a little complicated. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. So we've mentioned, uh, well, so seismicity is the study of the geographic um, and historical distribution of earthquakes. Is that? Yeah. So, so and even that term is a little bit broad. Um, uh, seismicity dis- is just a description of the seismic activity in an area, or it could be along a particular fault, or it could be near, let's say, an injection well, 
or you you can scale that. You could say global seismicity, um, but it's really just a characterization of the earthquake activity. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've mentioned faults already and fault slip. So let's define what what a fault is. That's right. It's hard to talk about an earthquake without using the word fault. I was trying really hard not to use the word fault. I probably failed. Uh, but the the fault is the that area where one body of rock moved past another. Um, so if you you can see faults actually at the surface, and geologists map them regularly. I think if you Take a moment to look at our lovely map service. You'll find uh, a little nod to Doug there. Uh, you'll find uh, faults mapped across the state. Um, and what that means is a discontinuity uh, in, the, in the rocks of the earth, you know, usually in the earth's crust, what we're talking about, um, where one body of rock has moved past another. So just displacement of different rock layers had to occur to cause a fault. Yes, and and I was reading uh, some stuff before before this, um, and there are correct me if I'm wrong three three kind of parts or stages of fault movement, and this this is where you get to that term called stick slip. So you've got initiation of sliding along a small part of a fault that that slip surface can can grow at perhaps different rate, um, and then you have termination of the slip and the, the movement stops. Um, is that kind of a right way to think about the, the sticking and slipping uh, sort of type movement along a fault? Mm -hmm. That's right. So the, the stick and the slip um, is describing the period uh, of earthquake activity and then the time between earthquake activity. And so the stick part is when Usually we think of it as tectonic stresses building up on either side of the fault plane. But the plane itself, you know, because you have one rock mass against another rock mass, there's friction between those two surfaces. And that friction keeps that uh, those two rock masses from sliding past one another most of the time. Uh, nevertheless, uh, whenever the stress that has built up on either side of that fault plane is greater than the strength, the frictional strength of the fault plane, then you have the slip part. So you have the stick, which is most of the time things aren't moving, even though the energy is building up. And then you have the slip, which is just like you mentioned, the, the rise of the rupture as it occurs, and then it obtains its whatever area it's going to occupy over the fault plane, and then it gradually stops. But each one of those in that in that in that time period uh, when it's slipping, uh, it's the that overcoming coming of the frictional strength, which is the release of the seismic energy that we often feel or see squiggles <laughs> on some yeah. sort of plot, or uh, you know that we that we talk about. Um, I suspect you get this question a lot um, when people are looking at, say, a map of Kentucky. Let's just say uh, and, and see the faults that have been identified and mapped in Kentucky. Um, they'll say, oh, look, look at all these faults here. This is where, you know, earthquakes are likely. So how do you, how do you look at active versus inactive faults? And is that, is that still the right way to, to think about faults? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, 
Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of faults crossing Kentucky. You just reiterated, and uh, most of those faults aren't associated with earthquakes. In fact, I'll go out on a limb here and say no fault mapped in Kentucky has been associated with earthquake. And we, we say mapped. <laughs> when we say mapped, that means uh -huh. it's been identified either out in the field or through some geophysical te techniques um, where we can image the subsurface and identify these breaks and rocks. Yeah, I knew about the surface faults. So none of the faults that we've mapped below the surface have a, been associated with an earthquake. Not as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's that's interesting. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting phenomenon. It, and that, that has plagued uh, trying to predict where earthquakes may happen, right? Uh, yeah. And I, th I think I've read recently that, I mean, that's not a phenomenon unique to Kentucky, that it's a phenomenon worldwide. That's, that's exactly right. That most faults aren't active. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. <laughs> it is. And, 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 you know, I have to be careful because when we say not active, that, uh, that there's a level at which we can't measure or experience earthquakes. And so it's a possibility that some faults are moving a little bit and we're just missing them in our data, either felt data or other digital data. Um, but it does appear from routine monitoring that I'm, I'm going to stick with Kentucky here because I, maybe I know it better than other places uh, that earthquakes aren't happening along the faults that we know about. And to get back to your question, Matt, about um, the different kinds of faults, uh, um, you know, we, we see the faults on the map. Um, they don't seem to be hosting earthquakes. And, and Doug, you were alluding to other deeper faults um, that Matt, you mentioned, we know through geophysics techniques. Um, uh, those deeper faults are the ones that we seismologists are more interested in. So uh, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes geologists have one idea of a fault because it helps understand geologic history or why this one unit is juxtaposed against another unit. But the seismologists are more interested in the faults where, you know, that, that current, that present day strain might be accumulating uh, that could be released catastrophically. So those are faults that are known geophysically, uh, they're deeper. And yet again, in Kentucky, those faults aren't associated with earthquakes. Right. And, and that could be for several reasons, including those locations of the faults and their orientation and stuff uh, is not turned with the best determined with the best precision using the geophysical techniques. So, you know, it's, although our earthquakes are located very well, as I can attest to, <laughs> uh, the, the faults could be a little bit off. But nevertheless, uh, you would think there'd be some suggestion of it. And so far, we don't see the suggestion of activity. So when we have an earthquake in Kentucky, then does that identify or pinpoint faults that we didn't know existed before? Or what are those earthquakes in Kentucky associated with? Like, how does that work yeah. if they're not associated Great. with faults that we know? Right. They're associated with a fault that we don't know about. Right. Okay. And and so uh, many times we'll we'll try to study really small earthquakes because they can delineate a fault that we didn't know about it. We can we look for patterns in the seismicity or different uh, characterizations of the source itself um, that we can do with some more sophisticated analyses uh, to identify and characterize faults that we didn't otherwise know about. Neat. Okay. Yeah. And, and in Kentucky, most earthquakes are happening 10 miles beneath the surface. So 
the, there doesn't necessarily need to be a strong correlation between surface geology uh, and those earthquakes. Okay, right. Yeah, so, someone, you know, there's faults in central Kentucky that have been mapped. They're on a geologic map, so someone might look at that and say, oh, wow, there's faults here. Might be an earthquake, but that's not necessarily the case. So that's, yeah. that's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And it takes, it takes a certain number of ingredients to cause a fault to slip. Um, and I keep mentioning, you know, either energy or strain or stress, and we can use those words, uh, in, you know, depending on the particular parameter we're interested in, but we can use those words to describe whether or not a fault may become prone to fail. And if a fault has to be oriented in the right way in the modern stress field to even get loaded yeah. to fail. Mm. Yeah. And to have some energy that needs to be released. Right. Yeah. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the modern stress field and where the stresses are coming from in, 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 in Kentucky in particular? Sure. I mean, that's sure. kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And, uh, what, what we think, uh, the, the new accumulation of energy that could be happening in the Earth's crust is from the tectonic plate boundaries. And so these are really far field forces that are leading up to faults getting loaded and potentially failing someday in our area. Uh, so I believe the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is the closest such uh, tectonic boundary. Wow. Um, so we're getting compressional stresses uh, all the way in Kentucky from the, the things mushing together basically yep, yep. yeah really pushing together on on those opposite sides of the rock masses and mm -hmm. more recent research is, is suggesting that there are uh, density anomalies in the earth's crust uh, that are leading to some of these zones of activity which um, which are always also interesting to talk about in Kentucky but uh, <laughs> interestingly in westernmost Kentucky, uh, what's been imputed as a source of energy, in addition to tectonic stresses, is a high-density body in the lower crust, upper mantle. And in eastern Kentucky, and particularly eastern Tennessee, kind of bleeding over into Kentucky, <laughs> it's been a low-density hmm. anomaly. When I say anomaly, that just means something different from what's there on average. Mm -hmm. uh, so... High density on one side leading to earthquakes and low density on the other side leading to earthquakes. So kind of seems like you could take your pick and <laughs> <laughs> impute what you want. But, but more, some, more something to perturb yeah. the stress field, you know? Right. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to actually, I, I have that to ask you about sort of the, we can look at there about this sort of source of seismicity in oh. western Kentucky. But Sorry. Uh, no, no, that, the, <laughs> the stress field is a good. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, the. We don't think of our area as being tectonically active, which it's really not, but we're still affected by these worldwide stresses, right. you know, because we're all right. on the same planet, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But, you know, to think, oh, we're affected by uh, the mid-Atlantic Ridge is, right. you know, kind of wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. I didn't know that. That just blew my mind. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. had no idea. <laughs> so I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's talk about magnitude and size. Um, those are terms that you hear a lot associated with earthquakes. Um, do they mean the same thing? Do they mean different things? Well, depending on the context, they may mean the same thing or they may mean something different. Um, 
magnitude is an estimation of the size. And uh, fundamentally, the size of the earthquake means how large was the area that ruptured, how, how large was the fault that ruptured, and how much did it slip. So those are the two big, two big factors that are variables that determine the, the uh, size, the physical size of the earthquake, but also go into calculating its magnitude. And that's, that's something that you know, we, we can use geophysical data sets, earthquake data sets, to go back and estimate after an earthquake happened. Um, or someone could do an investigation of fault mapping and, and uh, measure the size of the earthquake and make you know, some assumption about how much it would slip and then you can estimate the size of earthquake that particular fault could produce. But yeah, magnitude is, is, is there's different magnitude scales, but they come down to, just like with a category of a hurricane or a tornado, some way to uh, put in simple terms on a, on a tractable scale the energy release in this particular event. A, a magnitude is a measurement of overall size, include you know in that equation is the, the the size of the fault that moved the the slip um and then you get uh you can calculate a magnitude and now nowadays it's it's moment magnitude that is the right. common right. uh type of magnitude as mm -hmm. opposed to richter scale uh that was sort of traditional right which is which is <clears throat> honestly hasn't been used probably in decades, but um, sometimes we'll try to synthesize the Richter scale. It gets a new name uh, because it's not exactly the same thing that, that Charles Richter did, but we're trying to kind of replicate the seismometer that he used, the particular kind of seismometer, and then uh, use the same scaling factors that he used. So we can come up with a magnitude that's very similar to a Richter magnitude, but it's done kind of digitally these days. Yeah. He was actually measuring stuff like on paper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, oh, go ahead, Doc. I was going to say that, and then the, with magnitude, the change in number that, you know, that initial number, talk a little bit about the, you know, the. Right. The, so it's a big difference yeah. in the actual energy release compared to the change in number. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question, Doug. So um, magnitude scales are, all logarithmic because they're trying to make small uh, changes out of big numbers. Otherwise, what it could be large changes in numbers. So, for example, um, go back to the Richter, Richter scale. Uh, for every 10, let's say, units of amplitude I measure on my my seismogram, you know, which maybe I'll use, if I was Charles Richter, I'd be using those paper records, or now I use my computer screen. Uh, for every factor of 10 increase for a source at a given distance, that's one magnitude unit increase. If we go back and think about the moment, like you mentioned, Matt, or the, the area of the fault plane and its slip, that, you know, the product of those two in some other terms. Um, now I'm talking about seismic moment, which is mm. true energy release um, measured in joules or something equivalent, uh, and a factor of 32 or 31.6 uh, energy increase gives you a magnitude unit increase. Okay. So all of a sudden, after two magnitude units, you're talking about nearly a factor of 1,000 greater energy release. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, you know, if you're going from magnitude 
zero to a magnitude two is not a big deal, but <laughs> but a six to a seven, six, yeah, seven, six to seven, seven, that is a big deal. Yep, and that's another way size can be thought about it is how much damage there was, how much shaking did someone feel, how many buildings got leveled. People think about size that way. Oh yeah, that way right. too. Yeah, 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 exactly. That actually has a name called intensity. Inten- I was just <laughs> say, so I was yep. going to say, yep. where does intensity fit fit in? That's right. So there's an intensity scale, which yeah, uh, I think it's the same for tornadoes. Like if you look at the, what is this, the Fujita scale? Oh, I could be wrong. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but not uh, not weather people. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, that that is. You, you you go and look at the after effects, like how large of a tree was knocked down and sheared and how what happened to the houses. And then you come up with, you know, you kind of back out the scale of the tornado. The same thing with earthquakes using what's called the modified Mercalli intensity scale. And uh, so there's particular intensities that are assigned to earthquakes depending on did a plate rattle? Did it fall off the shelf and break? Yeah. <laughs> did did a, you know, a structure get damaged? Was the structure destroyed? So you go from intensity and what I was just describing about an intensity four to an intensity 10 mm. uh, on the modified Mercalli scale. Mm. Interesting thing about Mercalli, and I assume they still do this, but, you know, with magnitude, you usually think about an earthquake has one magnitude of, you know, you you probably debate about this or whatever, but you know, you can think about it as one magnitude, but intensity is mapped, right? Where you map out the intensity mm. depending on where you live, where you're experiencing that, that one event, the intensity changes based on where you live, which, yep. which is important for hazard assessment, I guess, which mm. we'll be talking about, but. Is that still, that's still done. That's still done. That's still done. (laughs) And in fact, uh, an important resource uh, for people who feel earthquakes and uh, can document the effects that they experienced is to go into the USGS database. It's called the Did You Feel It database. Right. And and input your information, which will be where you were and what you experienced. And then uh, that goes into what's becoming important data sets to... I guess understand uh, the differences in earthquake energy release in different areas, but also what's really helpful about it is that the new intensity data helps us to go back and understand old earthquakes that happened prior to the instrumental era. So if all we have are newspaper reports um, and other documents that describe people's experiences, you know, and we can map out where those occurred and we can therefore relate that to a current intensity estimation. Then we can back out of that where the earthquake may have been and how big it was. So it helps with understanding earthquakes that we couldn't understand a whole lot about without that information. Yeah. So you're right though. Uh, Intensities vary with uh, distance, but also the geology you're on top of, uh, you know, how well your structure is built, just many different factors affect intensity. One of the most fascinating ones is, the one I remember is the Loma Prieta quake. I think the the World Series yeah. quake, right? Yeah, eighty nine, yeah. nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, which was pretty far from San Francisco, but the effects in San Francisco were pretty high because everybody next to the bay lived on. 
bass sediment. And so mm. their intensity was really high, even though maybe in between that on the harder rock, or and we'll probably talk more about this, you know, wasn't experienced as hmm. much shaking, but. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. I was, I was going to mention this. I didn't know where to do it, but we can do it now. Uh, th- there's several kinds of maps out there that show intensity for a similar magnitude earthquake on the West coast versus East coast. And it's very different. So a magnitude five, let's say in San Francisco might not, the intensity may dissipate, you know, not too far out, but that goes a lot further if that magnitude five is on the East coast. And there's lots of reasons for that geology. Um, but I don't know, maybe say something about that. Well, I think you're right. The geology probably has, has a lot to do with it. Uh, I mean, the other factor could be population density, just depending on where you may be hoping to uh, collect your observations from. (laughs) People aren't necessarily uniformly distributed, but yeah. uh, Go ahead. Sorry. Before is intensity always subjective based on reports from humans or is there instruments that also? Well, you know, no, it's a good question, Doug. So there's, I think in retrospect, we've assigned acceleration ranges to a given intensity value, but it's always been that intensity is just, you know, these sorts of effects were observed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Anyway, good sorry. question. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So uh, yeah, you're right, Matt. I mean, if, if you look at, if you go to the, did you feel it website and you can somehow make a map of, let's say the Napa Valley earthquake effects, um, what was that? 2018, 2019, but a magnitude six or so earthquake in Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the same levels of intensities that were uh, experienced in that earthquake as you can from, uh, let's say, the two years ago or last year. My memory's fading now, but the Sparta earthquake in North Carolina. North Carolina, yeah. Uh, so that was a magnitude unit lower, but the level, the intensities were experienced over a much larger distance. So, hmm. um, yeah, what happens is, is what, what, what we understand is it's called the phenomenon of, of attenuation. And so we use that word, uh, you know, kind of casually just to mean something decreased, right. If it was attenuated, but although maybe you don't put that in your English essay, I don't know. But, uh, when, when the seismic waves decrease in amplitude, uh, over distance, that's called attenuation, and attenuation in the in the central and eastern U.S. is much less than out west. And you know, we it has to do with the age of the rocks, their their coldness in the thicker craton of the central U.S. and and the much um, so tectonism occurred, you know, however much longer ago than it is. In the West Coast, where yeah. honestly it's ongoing, right? Yeah, rocks are <laughs> um, more broken up, right? More recently, and so exactly, and so the result of the, the those combined effects is that seismic waves aren't scattered. They're not. There's not uh, energy loss due to heat and different things, uh, nearly to the same degree there is on the West Coast. Hmm. That Sparta earthquake was really interesting. I think I think it was the first documented surface rupture since in the East since. 1811, 1812 earthquake, or, or is that? Good question. That's a good point. Because um, they, they did it, document surface it, rupture. Maybe it is documented surface rupture. Wow. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Which was really interesting because it was only magnitude 5.1. Yeah. 
Uh, and we had Mineral Virginia, which was a 5.8 back in 2011, which yep. did not produce surface rupture. Right. And you know, we've had uh, magnitude 5.8 also in Oklahoma in recent years, which also did not produce surface rupture. So there, that earthquake, what distinguished it from those others that I mentioned was that it was very, very shallow. Mm. Um, and, and so, right, the rupture of the fault, even though the area is not huge, uh, it ruptured through the surface. So that is that is highly unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned New Madrid. There's, it's not even conclusive if it ruptured okay. the surface okay. there as well, yeah. it, or whether or not the sediment layers are just kind of folded and draped across the propagating fault tip. So that's, yeah, but so that's why the Sparta earthquake, earthquake really is special because yeah. those other, the earthquakes in New Madrid and the other ones I mentioned were obviously much larger in the former case and then uh, still larger yet again. There's a good article in a case. good article in a recent GSA Today, a few months back now, I guess, but about, about the Sparta earthquake. Mm-hmm. How much was like the surface offset? Then uh, on the order of centimeters. Oh, okay. But I, Not a lot, uh, yeah. I don't. I okay. don't know off the top of my head. Sure, sure. Let's uh, let's start out broad with uh, some pictures here of of earthquakes, and then we can kind of drill down to uh, some central eastern U.S. Kentucky information. Um, I just had some factoids I jotted down from the U.S. Geological Survey's earthquake hazard page, just to kind of give our audience, I think, a broad broad picture here. But it's related to how often large earthquakes occur. And a, a question I get sometimes, I suspect, Seth, you get a lot, is are large earthquakes occurring with greater frequency? Um, so just some notes I jotted down here. Top five largest earthquakes that we have recorded in the world. Chile in 1960 was a 9.5. Uh, Southern Alaska, I guess along the Aleutian Island belt there, 1964 was a 9.2. Northern Sumatra, I think we already mentioned this one perhaps, 2004, 9.1. That caused the devastating tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people. And then uh, fourth largest there, uh, Hanshu, Japan, 2000. 11, also devastating earthquake, was a 9.1. Since the year 2000, there have been 20, this is worldwide, 20 magnitude 8 or greater earthquakes with an average of 1.2 a year. So an average of 1.2, 8 or greater earthquakes a year. Uh, since 2000, again here, 303 magnitude 7 to 7.9 with an average of 13.8 per year, uh, so on here, it's 3,021 magnitude 6 to 6.9 with an average of 137 per year, 35,492 magnitude 5 to 5.9 earthquakes with an average of 1,600 of those a year. Um, just just in the United States, I've jotted this down, uh, there have been 140, I think this is right, magnitude seven or greater earthquakes um, and 12 magnitude eight or greater earthquakes in uh, North America. But one question I had with all that is um, it seems to be kind of remarkably consistent with the amount of large earthquakes that occur in the world. Right. Uh, It's a, I guess a, to seismologist, it's a a well-known and 
really intriguing phenomenon that earthquakes seem to obey a natural scaling law. Uh, fractal scaling is sometimes what it's referred to as, and uh, the, the idea is that it's naturally ordered, and the uh, the just like the magnitude scale is logarithmic, and uh, <laughs> you know obeys somehow this power of ten uh, law. Well, the earthquakes themselves, um, I guess we use that scale for convenience. I should I should back up and say, uh, but earthquakes themselves tend to recur at decreasing rates with increasing size. And for every, if you look, think back to the numbers that you were just going through there, they increase by about a factor of 10 as you drop down a given magnitude unit uh, range. And, and that's, that's an interesting phenomenon that, that we observe. There's about 10 times more of the next magnitude size smaller yeah. everywhere. It generally obeys that. Um, and we infer anomalous geological situations when we see a greater or lesser rate in a given location. Uh, if there are many more, uh, let's say, large magnitude earthquakes compared to the smaller ones, we sort of think, well, this must be a high-stress environment. And if there are many fewer, we, we say it's low stress, or maybe there's fluid interaction in the fault or something. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's an amazing and uh, wonderfully robust observation. Um, it's likely reflective of the energy budget in the Earth to produce earthquakes, which goes back to, you know, plate tectonics and fundamentally Mantle convection. Yeah, say <laughs> convection currents in the mantle and what's right. driving plate movement. Right. Yeah. Can we get earthquakes bigger than 9.5? I suppose, but probably not a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, uh, and can if you, by saying we, do you mean... The planet. We on the earth. Yeah. And, and right. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, not in Kentucky. Well, right. But yeah. Not, mo it's possible. It's possible. On planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that 9.5 happened in, off the coast of Chile uh, in 1960, like you mentioned, Matt. And uh, if the fault plane were to be, uh, uh, I have to do the math to figure that out, but I, I, would, I think that that particular fault plane could host a larger earthquake. The trick is that even though theoretically it could, what seems to happen in locations like Chile, uh, and actually, incidentally, just to backfill a little bit here, every one of those that you mentioned, Matt, occurred along a subduction zone. So oh, very right. different geology right. than we have in Kentucky. We have nothing akin to that. Right. Um, and, and that's because it takes this tremendous fault uh, to produce right. such a large earthquake. And um, the those large faults seem to occur or seem to be extant at subduction zones. Um, and that has to do with the length of the structure, but also the its width uh, into the subsurface um, before it gets to the point where it can deform in a sliding way rather than this catastrophic stick-slip way. Yeah. So you have to have a subduction zone to do that. The San Andreas obviously is a huge fault, but it dips totally vertically. So it reaches that subduction zone. Yeah, right. exactly. It, it reaches that place where it's going to slide in, in, in sort of a more stable way um, at a at a, a smaller over a smaller area, even though it's particularly long. Um, whereas in the subduction zone, the fault's dipping, so it doesn't reach that same depth to those temperatures 
for the uh, the stable sliding to occur. So the other thing, so you need that; those are ingredients you need, but you also need particular places along the fault plane or the, the fault patch that can increase the friction. Uh, so like asperities, you know, submarine volcanoes, something like that, something totally cool and interesting that also we don't have in Kentucky mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, to, to sort of catch and hold um, for the fault to accumulate that energy to be released over a large area. So, and I, I, those are not all the ingredients. I mean, we, we could continue on with that, but um, it does take a subduction zone to make a big earthquake, such a big earthquake. Yeah. Before we d d I guess, d dive into some central U.S. and eastern U.S. and Kentucky stuff, real quick, uh, what is a seismometer and how do the modern instruments differ from uh, perhaps older ways that we've measured uh, earthquake waves? Uh, so the, the the topic is called seismometry, which is... Uh, <laughs> yes. I got it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <Different> field. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, we seismometer, we seismologists need seismometers to do our work. And, uh, I, it's my understanding that the earliest such instrument, which is totally different than we use today was, you know, maybe first second century AD, uh, in, in China. And, um, uh, I think it was the Han dynasty and they used what's called a seismoscope, which was just this vessel, this ceramic piece though, where a frog would have a little, marble in its mouth and there were various frogs along uh, spread out along the the circumference of this ceramic dish and then when earthquake came presumably then the marble would get tossed out of the frog's mouth and then you know something about the earthquake so seriously yeah. that was a big one yep. that was a big one that, yep i think you could say big one that it was big enough to make a, a marble drop out but uh, it was a first attempt right are they alive no. Okay. No, Thank you. Like, I'm like, how do you get the frogs in place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good question, Sarah. Although, Sarah, to be thorough, animals have been used in earthquake research. So. Oh, we, that's right. We, that's we, a whole different. It's a whole different area of research. Oh, it probably man. has a name. <laughs> but a, si a seismometer measures the arrival and behavior of energy released by an earthquake, the waves produced by an earthquake right. in general. Right. So they, the waves are kind of filtered and changed a little bit, uh, by the seismometer. So when we look at the squiggly record on the screen, that's not necessarily exactly what the ground did. Um, we can get to that by knowing the physics of the seismometer, which means that, uh, we can take the recording and remove the effects of the physics of the seismometer to then recover how the ground moved. Um, but going back to the seismometer itself, really most of the instruments that we use these days operate on the same principles that they always have. Maybe after the seismoscope with the marble and the frog and things like that. Um, we should bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we got the idea that a mass on a spring uh, works pretty well. And, and uh, basically a seismometer in its most simple elements consists of a mass on a spring and then a case, right? Or a frame of some kind around all that. Uh, the frame is attached to the earth. And so when the earth moves, the frame moves, but the mass, because of its inertia, wants to stay still. And so if we can get somehow out of that, the differential motion between the mass, which wants to stay still, and the frame of the seismometer, then we can get a recording. And that's kind of what we use. And so we, we typically use electronics to do that. 
uh, to get that differential motion, there's a, uh, I think it's called Lenz's law in physics. Um, you basically want a magnet to be moving through a, a stationary coil of wire, and then that induces a current, which is related to the velocity. Mm. So we are measuring voltages out of seismometers that relate to how much the mass moved with respect to the case of the seismometer. Again, because the mass wants to stay still. Yeah. Um, so we can get really fancy into more modern instruments where they now have the ability to record ground motions over a very broad range of frequencies, uh, very low frequencies from the gentle swell of the ground uh, due to ocean waves. And to go even more extreme to the gentle swell of the ground due to the moon's orbit. Fascinating. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or the earth tide is what it's called. All the way up to uh, being very close to a very small earthquake, like a crack forming, uh, which produces very high frequencies. Um, so their new technology um, has allowed what's called broadband seismometers to be used to record that broad range of, of ground shaking. Uh, and it uses... Uh, what's called a force feedback loop. It translates the ground, that displacement we were talking about, it translates that into a force that's then used to keep the mass from moving at all. Then the ground motion is related to the force. Very so, sensitive instruments. Very sensitive yeah. instruments. Fascinating. <laughs> so cool. Well, let's, let's get to central and eastern U.S. seismicity. Most people think of earthquakes in Kentucky. They think of the New Madrid seismic zone. Um, we can talk as little or as much about this as we want. Um, there were two large earthquakes in the New Madrid seismic zone in 1811, 1812, at least three, I think. At is least that right? Three. At least three. Yeah. My, my question really is, is, is there, is there still, I mean, I think there is, is there scientific debate on the origin like we talked about the stress field a little while ago, the the origin of seismicity in a place like the New Madrid seismic zone is that is that hotly debated still? It is debated yeah. still, but it, why are there? I don't know there? how hot. It's kind of cooled. Off. It's kind of cooled <laughs> off in recent years, but but honestly, to me, the the jury is still out, and I'm happy to describe why. So. What's strange is that there is a region of concentrated earthquake activity. That's what's strange, right? Um, but there's no there's no tectonic boundary, right? Um, it's just a geographic context. This is in far western Kentucky, along the Mississippi River, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Tennessee, Arkansas, Arkansas that yeah, possibly yeah, Illinois, a, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, and exactly. Like Real Foot Lake is. Uh, Related, correct? Right. Yeah. right. That's right. So that's right. We should go over all that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it's called an intraplate seismic zone. And there's whole sessions, even at GSA, about this stuff. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so the the it's anomalous to have earthquake activity in in the interior of a stable tectonic plate, otherwise stable tectonic plate. Right. Um, so that already makes it interesting, right? Um, add to that that between 1811 and 1812, there were, as you said, Matt, at least three magnitude seven and greater earthquakes that occurred within a three-month period. So that's also very strange. Uh, I'm I'm not aware of another sequence like that on the planet. Um, In an interplate environment. Uh, yeah, or not. Or oh, wow. to have within, oh. within three months. Just with sequence. Oh. Yeah, with a sequence like that. Um, 
and that, that could just be my ignorance, yeah, yeah. but but it definitely is is anomalous and rare, uh, even if it has occurred elsewhere. But those earthquakes happened on a series of faults deep in the Earth's crust uh, that obviously were prone to fail <laughs> at that given time, and uh, what what caused them to fail is probably unknown, but. The question that I think we can get down to is what you're getting at, Matt, is it going to happen again? And what's the nature of the ongoing seismic activity that we see? The expression of the pneumatic earthquakes at the surface is very limited and subdued. If you weren't paying attention, you would drive right over what we think is related to the real foot fault having ruptured in 18, February of 1812. Uh, and it's a bump in the road. Yeah. So... There's been a very large earthquake, undoubtedly, because of the historical reports. And yet there's very little surface expression. If you go around to other places and you where there have been magnitude 7 and greater earthquakes, there's a mountain range or <laughs> there's a, a, you know, some, a, or a, a valley mm-hmm. that's prominent, right? Or mm. something uh, that, that suggests, hey, this is, a, <laughs> this is a big thing that's happened multiple times. But New Madrid doesn't show that. So whatever it is, it's a short-lived phenomenon. Uh, those earthquakes in 1811-1812, occurring to, according to consensus view, uh, were not the only ones that occurred there that were very, very large. Um, there's been some what's called paleoseismology work to date wood and you know uh, artifacts and whatnot um, that suggest the zone has been active before. Uh, they work with sand blows and yeah. try to find you know or, organic carbon somehow that's potentially correlates over a broad area. But the ongoing debate, to get back to your original question, <laughs> is uh, is about is it going to happen again, and what does the current seismicity tell us about that zone? And this is where you have the very very interesting and very different branches of. Uh, seismology, geophysics, uh, geodesy coming together to give you a different story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, because aren't there aren't there theories like oh, s- the source of the stress is isostatic rebound from something right. or some deep seated magma chamber or something that's mm-hmm. you know you know radiating stress in the area. So that those are two right. very different uh, things that could be contributing to right. to stress. Right. Exactly. And, and yeah, and, and, and there've been many papers written on that topic yeah. and you using those mechanisms, mechanisms that you mentioned. What I find so interesting is that, uh, one of actually a couple of papers now, maybe a few papers, uh, have been published. Um, I'm trying to think at the time range, I believe early two thousands into the, uh, maybe, maybe within a, a decade period, starting in the early 2000s, that have shown that strain, which just means deformation, um, strain is not occurring at the surface in the New Madrid seismic zone. So across the entire flat, what's called the Mississippi embayment, um, there's that large uh, floodplain, uh, just sediment-filled basin uh, that occupies uh, western Kentucky all the way across into Missouri and farther south and a little bit north, doesn't seem to be deforming. And if the surface isn't showing deformation, then how how can there be ongoing strain or, again, deformation in the subsurface? 
which you need to accumulate new energy on a fault, which would then fail later on. The, what happens with time in these studies is they keep resolving zero better and better. They keep the, <laughs> the error bars shrink around zero, and the error bars are getting smaller and smaller after more and more studies. So it's really interesting. Weird. Yeah. Uh, but using, again, uh, I guess uh, publicly available, I think, uh, gravity data sets and some very sophisticated processing, um, a paper that came out mm, a few years ago now illustrated that this high-density body beneath the New Madrid zone is just that ingredient that you need to add to ongoing tectonic forces from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge <laughs> uh, to produce mm. contemporary seismicity. So I, again, don't know how you decouple that phenomenon from the zero strain we're observing at the surface, but interestingly, these... these uh, different kinds of geophysics are telling us. Uh, you, you would conclude very different things <laughs> looking at just those different kinds of geophysics uh, results. Yeah. So it's a mystery. Yeah. Um, interesting. It's totally figure interesting. figure that out on Monday? And just I'm going to work on that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I'll have an answer. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Um, yeah. Okay. So just in, in the state boundary here, Kentucky's largest earthquake was in Bath County near Sharpsburg in 1980. Is that right? Yes. Depending on how you count it. Oh. Depending on how you count it. So, and depending on what magnitude scale you use. Okay. It's 5.8 around the right number. It was, well, the, it was published as a 5.3 and a 5.2 using a you know, a particular sort of amplitude-based scale, maybe similar to what Richter would have used. Um, but when we look at the seismic moment, it was just barely a five when you round up. Um, so I just actually, uh, before I came today, I looked back at an earthquake catalog that I put together recently, which should include all earthquakes <laughs> that have ever been recorded uh, in Kentucky. And uh, the mid 1800s, and then the earliest 1900s. Apparently, just barely within the border of Kentucky, in that little Kentucky Bend area. Oh, yeah. You know that little part of Kentucky that's surrounded by Missouri and Tennessee? Our little nub. Yeah, it's like the island of Kentucky. You have to go into Tennessee Which you can't get there from here. Right. That just within the border, so we can claim up, there was a magnitude 5.1 and 5.2. And... You may ask, how do we have estimates of those magnitudes, given that was pre-instrumental period in, in our area, and it was through the same technique that we talked about, just using cool. using historical reports. So mm. the uncertainties around those magnitudes are large, obviously. Uh, in other words, they could range quite a bit from those numbers. But that just told me today, I learned it today for the first time, that maybe the largest earthquakes were actually the New Madrid oh, seismic zone. Interesting. More than 100 years ago. Shaking uh, things up, Seth, no pun intended. I know, I know. But the Bath County earthquake that you mentioned, Matt, was a, is well known. I've talked to many people who have felt it. Um, uh, there was actually damage, I think, in Lexington. Like some foundations got some cracks yeah, from right. that wow. earthquake. And it caused, uh, I think in today's dollars, about $4 million worth of damage uh, in Maysville. So... Yeah, it was a it was an important one and a big reason why we have a seismic network today. Actually, yeah, hmm. yeah. So go ahead and say something about the network and what KGS is is doing to monitor earthquakes and develop earthquake hazard assessments. 
Certainly. So we we operate a seismic network which records uh, data from across the state in real time. So as earthquakes or other phenomena happen, we can get those data here um, for analysis. Um, the most most of those places that are real time that I was mentioning that are networked and shipping data to us operate seismometers. Um, some of them also operate strong motion instruments, which um, kind of like you have in your cell phone, you have an accelerometer in your cell phone, which tells it when you flip or you know want to wake it up or whatever. Um, we operate larger versions of those that are you know accurate and, and sensitive to stay on scale in the in the event of very strong shaking. So we're talking about maybe the acceleration due to gravity kind of shaking or two to four times that. So very, very strong shaking. They can, they can record motions that strong. Uh, and so we operate that kind of station, which is called a strong motion accelerograph in various places around the state also. So the purposes of those data are for more engineering related purposes where we want to know how strong does the ground shake in a particular event so that we can design buildings and bridges to withstand it. Yep. I know you've done a ton of work with the network since you've been here. It's really been, it's really improved a lot. I know that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it uh, we, we brought it into the digital, the digital era. Yeah, um, yeah. Where all but one station at this point um, has its own data recorder on site and allows for the, the collection and, and uh, telemetry uh, of, of the data to here at KGS. How many total stations do we have? Well, that number is in flux. Uh, interestingly, we, we have uh, 24 stations that are operating in real time right now. Um, the map is is uh, currently changing because we are trying to expand to put instruments in new locations um, that will benefit our monitoring. And so we have a station that we've sort of adopted into the network in West Liberty, another one that we're working on currently in Maysville. Um, one that is planned for the coming months in Mammoth Cave, interestingly. This is on my list of things to bring up. Yep. So that right. will be touched on. Good, yeah. good, good. Because um, yeah. we need a cave. Oh, uh, no, uh, I need to start bringing back my cave reference back, every episode. So again. I have one. I've got one. So we're, we're you're not getting a, away without it. We're searching a, a holistic geological understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, area of interest. So. Yeah. Those, that, um, you can view those on our website yes. and you can view the, the recordings off our website. It's actually a really popular part of the website. Cool. Um, especially yeah. when we have, when there's a big event in the news anywhere in the world, Yeah. Uh, usually we can pick those up and. Oh yeah. Um, it looks fantastic. It's kind of yeah. neat. Yeah. Do you, do bring, you want to talk ahead, bring about it back to All right, okay. Okay. Mm. okay. So like, this is actually one of the most common questions. So I was a tour guide, um, in a couple different caves, um, Lost River Cave here in Kentucky and Bowling Green, um, and then also out in Carlsbad Caverns. And so there's a seismometer in Carlsbad Caverns. Um, I don't think it's operational any longer, but that was put there back when they were doing like the Trinity nuclear testing and stuff to see like how that works. Um, but and and you mentioned that you're potentially putting one in Mammoth. So I have a couple questions. But as a tour guy, like one of the most common questions we get asked is like what happens when there's an earthquake and you're in the cave and are you, are you safer? Is it right, worse? Is it worse? Right. Yeah. And so what I understand and what I always told people, so maybe correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there's a bunch of people running around out there that I've influenced <laughs> wrongly, but 
it was explained to me that the waves need to travel through something solid. And so it travels through like the rock. But then when you're in the void space of the cave, like the, the waves don't travel through the air, the void. And so that when you're in the cave, you actually are in the safest place to be and have no idea. There, there are stories of people who've been at Mammoth Cave during an earthquake and had no idea the earthquake occurred, whereas the people on the surface are very worried about them mm -hmm. and they were they were unaware. So is that is that correct? Is like is it a pretty safe place to be? Well, a number of factors it depends upon, uh, as you might expect. But um, you know, the funny thing is, Sarah, to uh, to conflict with those those stories, uh -oh. <laughs> uh, the there are a lot of accounts of miners experiencing earthquakes. Ooh, well, right? and so they they have felt earthquakes in the mines. Uh, so, but by, by analogy, it should be the same, right? Yes and no. Maybe I guess because, and I've been not in any coal mines here, but I've been in a gold mine before, and so the the caves are sort of stable over time, right? Like that was carved out and everything around it, the walls, the ceiling, the floor it is fairly like adjusted to that, I guess. Um, what's fallen is going to fall. I mean, things fall over time, but not that often. Um, and so they're, they're adjusted to that, that landscape and environment. Whereas a, a mine, you're blasting or somehow excavating out that material and you, you have to like shore it up. And so it's not naturally stable over time so like i could see there potentially being a difference because of that I don't, I don't know is that uh possibly yeah for sure um but if the issue is you're not in rock you're right. in a void right then maybe you could say it's analogous yeah um but no you're right i mean uh the stability of of what you're on and under does affect the degree of the shaking um no doubt if you put a seismometer in a cave, you're going to experience shaking, right? And so what's the difference between the seismometer and you? Not, I mean, right. not much, right? I mean, like your feet are now coupled to the ground and you're, so you're going to be shaken. I think, you know, the question that, that I've heard about caves, is it, going to, is it going to be as much shaking that I experience mm. uh, as mm. I would at the surface? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, may, might I experience, uh, you know, some new crack forming or, uh, you know, a stalactite falling on me right. or something? And um, did I say that right? Is it stalactite that might fall on me versus a stalagmite that might fall over on me? Yeah, you got it. Okay, <laughs> good. All right, all right. Uh, so... Honestly, uh, interestingly, here I'll say, I should say <laughs> rather than honestly, uh, I hope I'm being honest, is that the, the ground motions that you experience at the surface are slightly larger than you would experience in the cave. So okay. if, you, if you feel an earthquake at the surface, you will feel it stronger than in the cave for a number of reasons. Um, so in that sense, a cave is a decent place to be. Uh, nevertheless, there is the possibility of something falling on you. Uh, and there is a whole field now, or an area of study in the field of paleoseismology where people actually try to study old earthquakes using broken stalactites mm -hmm. uh, right. or stalagmites wow. in caves. And so they'll, they'll try to get at the history of earthquakes uh, by virtue of these old features that mm -hmm. have fallen over and... Mm -hmm. You would be able to talk much more about how I could, or than I could, about how they're dated at that point. But, but right, that's exactly right. Gotcha. So, um, interesting field of study, and it has taken. I think people have been inside a mammoth cave uh, to do that. But I'm, I know that some caves in Missouri have been used for that. 
Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe and we can overlap someday in our, yeah, our study area. There you go. Yeah. So by field uh, collaboration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so by installing the seismometer in Mammoth Cave, um, are there benefits? Or is like, yeah, are there benefits to having it in the cave as opposed to at the surface, or are there differences? Yep. yep. Um, Good question. So. The, there are definitely benefits uh, to putting in the cave. Otherwise, we wouldn't go to the trouble. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, but yeah, so th one of the biggest things that we gain, two, two of the biggest things we gain, um, one of them is cultural noise can just kill mm. seismic observations. So everything that is in contact with the ground uh, has the possibility of making the ground shake. Um, tall buildings, trees, signs, uh, interstates, um, all those things induce seismic waves, even though they're not earthquakes, mm. um, they make the seismic waves that can plague our instruments. So it's really is the ground moving. So it's not a fault of the instrument, but the instrument's responding to the ground moving from those waves. Mm -hmm. um, and meanwhile, if a small earthquake happens, it could be caught up in all that and we can't see the earthquake signals. Um, so the cave, what's nice about the caves in general is that you can gain some, uh, when you go deeper below the surface, you're missing a lot of those waves as they mm. pass by. Um, there's still some signature of them. And it turns out in Mammoth Cave, I'm seeing the interstate, unfortunately, in oh, seismic instruments. So wow. I can't do much about that. Cultural noise waves. Wow. Cultural noise waves. Yep. Yeah. All the passing traffic, even though it's quite you know, a ways five five miles away i was away, gonna say five miles away or so it's, it's like, not even up there on the escarpment it's down there in the single plane so that's so incredible those waves, yep yep exactly wow. so that's a bit of a bummer but still we're talking about very very small motions right. so um, right. i'm not i'm not distraught because of that right. we still can record very small much smaller signals than we could mm -hmm. otherwise cool um but the other the other uh benefit is uh, when I mentioned earlier, uh, a seismometer called a broadband seismometer that's really sensitive and records those the ground shaking across a range of frequencies, um, those instruments are really uh, susceptible to noise from thermal fluctuations. And uh, so caves, the how much does the temperature change in, in a passage on Mammoth Cave, Sarah, during the year? Mm. Less than a degree or right, so, I right, would about say. A, a degree, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. So we don't have to worry about temperature, uh, thermal thermal signatures mm -hmm. uh, from oh, yeah. from the you know a, a situation from a location in the cave. So that's really nice too. So you can put a really sensitive instrument down there, and then so the, the cultural noise levels are lower, and also the thermal noise is lower. Cool. Yeah, I guess I do recall hearing things about studying that cultural seismicity when COVID happened, like yep. all of a sudden. That's exactly oh, right. Yeah. Everything so was quiet. It's pretty interesting. Quiet. We were yeah. all at home. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, I know you'd posted on our social media accounts when they're doing the construction out front of our <laughs> building. We pick that up <laughs> as well. Right. So That's right. right. That's right. The last thing I had is, I don't know, take this where you will, Seth. I sort of want to say something about the future of earthquake hazard assessment. Um, you and I are in the geologic hazard section here at the survey, and we think a lot about risk communication, hazard assessment, risk perception, um, how communities digest information about geologic hazards. So that that's a challenging problem. I mean, it's but it's work that we like to do. I, I you know I I think I think I speak for all of us here or geologists. Um, but you know, with earthquakes, it's, 
you know, maybe even more challenging, you know, communicating in the aftermath of an earthquake. Um, lots of people ask about prediction. How do you talk about aftershocks in a way that doesn't freak people out? All those kinds of things um, when there's a lot of uncertainty. So, um, I don't know, take it where you will um, with hazard assessment, prediction, or yeah. where things are going. There's a lot there, Matt. Um, <laughs> I, know, I know you know that from <laughs> your, your experiences. Uh, so, yeah, earthquake, earthquake hazard is quantified in different ways. Uh, and I don't think we need to get into all those details. Uh, in essence, the two main categories are what's called deterministic, which is kind of you do a, uh, a forward calculation using everything that you know um, and say this is the ground motion at a given site uh, versus probabilistic where I'm going to project uh, through a really complicated calculation uh, the kind of ground motion that you might experience and how often um, at a given location. So the, and the, the probability of that, I should say. Uh, basically, the, yeah, the, the problem that we sure would like to tell somebody is this is the level of acceleration that you should plan for. Yeah. Prediction would get into, this is the level of acceleration that you should plan for on this day <laughs> or during this which time. Which is not something we uh, can do. Which is, which is not in the realm of possibility. Yeah. Uh, so earlier we talked about using animals and <laughs> for right. seismic research yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and for sure uh, there are places still uh, where people have, and I, think, I think in China in particular, they, they are very, very have a strong research area of earthquake prediction and they have animals penned up uh, and they study them, you know, just, you know, probably with cameras, um, <laughs> to investigate how the animals may be sensitive to precursory signals. Um, so in summary, earthquake prediction has not proved to be a fruitful right. area of research yet. We don't work in that area. Right. Maybe it's going to prove beneficial that people are, uh, I think that the earth is so complicated that, what you may find works in one given area, you're going to find doesn't work in another given area, uh, just due to complexity and nuances of the of the Earth system. So, not an area where, where, where we work. Uh, I think what we tend to think is that let's try to understand the faults that show activity, the kind of motions that they can generate, and then uh, hand people a map that says this is a reasonable estimation of the strongest shaking you should expect. Um, and then uh, planners and and uh, uh, policymakers can use that right. as input for their particular codes or uh, whatever. Um, so we we have not worked in, in, in prediction or even in probabilistic hazard estimation. Right just choosing the more physically tractable, uh, deterministic approach. Um, which here's what we, here's what we know here's, about here's these what places. We know. Here's what, what we know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's more in line with our mission and right. my opinion. Uh, well, well that, that's a good, that's a good question. As far as resources, mm -hmm. we have a limited number of resources of things to study and yes. it seems, yes. it yeah. seems like that's the more prudent that's what we hope, and and you know, uh, thanks to our our, our our faithful section head uh, Zenming Wang, he uh, there there have been some of those deterministic calculations that have been put into use, 
for buildings and bridges in Western Kentucky. So, uh, it, as you say, it is eminently practical and, and, uh, and, and useful. Um, Seth, you've been really generous with your time here. Um, it was a great discussion. Yeah, good discussion. You know, that's oh, we we, we wanted to have you on for a long time, and uh, you know, <laughs> well, uh, I'm popular and all. This is being in the office next to yours. I think, I good, think of discussion. a bunch of other topics we could. Mm. We, could we always say that, but that's so true. Right. I mean, yeah, we're, we could yeah. branch off a here on something. About. Yeah, we could. Yeah. Well, you just briefly mentioned sand flows, which. I think is a super cool yes. thing that people should Google and look at what those look like because they're neat. But yeah. I didn't even know they existed until I started working here. And I think oh, yeah. we could do somebody done a field trip to see those and, and we could do that. Talked about cool. it. It was really interesting. Cool features. Yeah. yeah. We didn't even talk about liquefaction. We, we I had are, that yeah. written down okay. too. Look, we we'll get to it next. <laughs> yeah. Next we, episode. We should, yeah. Talk about Seth's other work too on. With the micro seismicity yeah. monitoring. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of induced seismicity. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's a lot we did. Well, I, I mean, this was great, though, to have this general overview of earthquakes, where they happen, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then you end up with, you know, what are we doing about it? And that's that's good. That's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are other, for sure, other particular areas of uh, interest in Kentucky that... If we could talk about more of it. No, yeah. uh, yes, good questions. To uh, be to good, be continued. Well, good job, team. Yeah, yeah. To we're be not continued. going anywhere yeah, soon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Seth. Yeah, okay, thanks. thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Super fun. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.